Alrighty, well let's open up our Bibles. We're going back to Luke 7 today. Centurion Faith Part 2. Luke chapter 7. And begin reading in verse 1, and it says, Now when he, Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Well, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, well, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. You know, this account that we just read here, it's a true story, this story account of the centurion servant, it begins speaking about the great need. This centurion servant is deathly ill. But the focus, we said this last time, the focus of the 10 verses that we read here is really not on the sick boy. He's kind of in the background, but it's on the faith of the centurion. And once again, we say the climax comes in verse 9, where we read that Jesus marvels at the centurion and exclaims, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And think about it, we talked about this too last time, there's only two times in the Bible where it says that Jesus marvels. And one is here, and here's where he doesn't expect to find faith at all, in a Gentile Roman soldier, someone that was raised to believe in many gods, ignorant of the scriptures, and to him he called Caesar Lord. That's what they had to do if you're part of that army. And he's calling Jesus Lord here. But the other place he marvels is over in Mark 6 in his own hometown, where everyone there, just the opposite of this centurion, they went to the synagogue every week. They heard the scriptures read. Hearing about, here's the one true God, here's all the mighty things he'd done, they would hear that week in and week out. And also they're observing Jesus. He's, it's his hometown. They knew him. They'd seen his sinless life. They'd heard the wisdom that he spoke before and after his baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're like, what are these works that he's doing? But yet it says they refused to believe in him. In fact, it says they were offended at him, which is funny. And it said that Jesus marveled this second time at their unbelief. He is honestly astonished that they don't believe. I can't believe you guys don't believe I can do anything to help you out. With what all you know, what all you've seen about me, I just can't believe it. Marveled, it says. Now, God doesn't view the world like we do, so we tend to marvel at things that he doesn't. Now, I've been to both the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls. 
When I got to both of those things, it's like a marvel. It really is. Niagara Falls is an eight-hour drive. You know, we all ought to make that drive. Maybe we'd have church up there some Sunday, huh? That'd be good. We could all marvel at the Niagara Falls, but it's not far away. You know, and the apostles, what did they marvel at? They're pointing out to him the grandeur of the temple. Look at these stones. Look at these buildings. And I mean, from all accounts that you read about, they were unbelievable, the stuff that Herod had built. But what does Jesus marvel at? What does he marvel at? He marvels at great faith or a great lack of it. That's what he marvels at. On the positive side, though, our Lord is marveling at what pleases him, isn't he? When he sees that in that centurion, I think he was pleased to see that in that centurion and marveled at faith. Because what do we know in Hebrews eleven six? It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible to please him. Now, I would say everybody that is truly born again, which is most of us in here, wants to please our Heavenly Father, don't we? I, mean, I think we really do. What gives this centurion great faith, which would have greatly pleased the Father and Jesus, I think should be of interest, of intense interest, should I say, to all of us here, how we can have that great faith. Because the greater our faith, the greater we will please him. The key to understanding, I think, this centurion's faith, I heard a man say this, and I think he's right in what he said is, this is what he said, everything in this story and everything in our own Christian life hinges on one thing. Everything hinges. Now, I'm not going to be able to get into this today as much as I am. We're going to have part three next week, and I'll more fully explain this, but I do want to talk about it. It hinges on one thing, and that is your or my or this centurion's estimation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his great faith, his faith wholly depended on his evaluation, his esteem, his regard, his respect, and his recognition of who Jesus is. We don't understand, we don't know, we don't understand everything that the centurion knew or understood about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that he knew he's fully God and fully man. I don't know that he knew he didn't have to. But there's two things that we know from the text that we read that we know that he understood. He was certain about this. He was certain that the Lord Jesus Christ had absolute power, that his word had absolute power. And we need to know that. Do we really believe that? That what he says will absolutely come to pass. But that's one thing he knew. And the second one thing was that Jesus was like himself, a man under authority. And that's where the power came from. Those two things. Jesus, he saw this, this centurion. You know, faith has to come from knowledge. It's not a leap in the dark. When we leap out in faith, it's faith based on knowledge. So he had to have some knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to this whole event that took place here. And Jesus, if you read Luke coming up to chapter 7, he had demonstrated through his word that he had power and authority over nature, over disease, and over evil spirits. When he taught in the synagogue, if you remember, it said that his word came with power. So he's speaking in the synagogues, and it caused demons to manifest. The anointing and power on his word actually caused a demon to manifest. I guarantee you that hadn't happened before. And he commanded, did what? 
When that happened, his teaching had authority and power, but also he commanded that demon in the Greek, it's shut up. Now, my little boy John gets upset whenever I say that, so we'll say he, he commanded the demon to be quiet, but then he cast him out of that man, and things were back to normal. The centurion, no doubt, was in the synagogue observing all of this, observing everything that's happening. Jesus speaking with authority, demonstrating his power and authority, because look in verse 5. They told Jesus he loves our nation, and he did what? He built us a synagogue. Well, if he loved the nation and built a synagogue, I guarantee you he was attending services while he was there. He was hearing the scriptures. That's why he had respect for him. He wanted to know more about this God. You go back to Luke chapter 4, and after Jesus cast the spirit out of that man, let's look back there. It's just a couple chapters back and see what it says. So go to Luke 4 and look in verse 35. Luke 4, 35, that spirit manifests itself, and it says in verse 35, Jesus rebuked him, the spirit addressed it, and said, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and it says he heard him not. But look at verse 36. It says, they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him, it says, went out into every place of the country round about. So the centurion's seeing that. I'm a man of power and authority, and I know when I say a word, people have to obey me. Everybody under me does exactly what I say, and there's no back talk. And he says, I'm seeing that in you. I'm seeing a connection here between me and you, is what he's saying. He's able to piece all this together. He's able to piece who Jesus is. He is the Lord over all of these things that he's commanding. And they have to do what he says. He's recognizing that much, and he's also piecing together how he's able to perform the miracles he does through his word. Now, how did he get that insight? God gave it to him. God blessed that centurion with that insight right there. And that caused Jesus, the Son of God, to marvel. I've not found, he says, after seeing what this man says, I haven't found this great a faith, not here in Israel where I would expect to find it. Haven't found it at all. So we'll see that great faith has everything to do with the man's perception of God. Like we talked about in Ephesians 1, we need to pray that God will open, like he did for him, our understanding and give us insight to who Jesus is. What is his power he is willing to exercise towards us who believe? He's not saying, I found such great faith. He's not praising the centurion, is he? The man, not saying, man, you're a great man. But he's saying what God has done in you, this great faith, he's marveling at that. That God has given this Gentile Roman soldier this insight and understanding and thus the faith to believe and say what he does. You know, R.A. Torrey, he, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of him. He was a great evangelist. He was with D.L. Moody, ministered with D.L. Moody. And he was talking to a man one day who was totally distressed about his salvation. And the man is saying, he said, I can't believe. He's crying out. And when reading this, Dr. Torrey, his reply, it surprised the man. But the man said later, what he told me revolutionized my whole life. Because Dr. Torrey, the guy saying, I can't believe. And Dr. Torrey said to him, whom 
can't you believe? So he didn't ask him, what can't you believe, but whom? And Dr. Torrey went on to say to this man, is it so very hard to trust him? So difficult to believe what he says? Come, come, he said to the man, have faith in God. Now, I thought that was good. The centurion had great faith because his faith was in him, the living Jesus. Not a what, not a five-step process, not a theory, not what we are expected to do. Because what I'm saying is we can clearly see the truth that I am the Lord that healeth thee. We can see all that, right? You can understand that. That's not the same, though, understanding that. It's seeing that that truth is embodied in Him, our Savior. And His Word can heal us. His Word. And He has the power and the willingness and the ability to give us what we need, what He's promised. He has promised us. Amen? Amen. What we receive from Him is going to be largely conditioned on how we perceive Him. Because listen, places that teach God doesn't heal or this is how he heals, that's where their faith is. That's what they think he's willing to do for them because of what they've been taught. And we've been faithfully taught that Jesus does want to heal us. He does. He wants to heal us. He wants to be the Lord, our healer. We're on to what produces this great faith. We said it should be of great interest to us. What's involved when great faith is on display? So I said last week there's three things, and I thought I could get to all three of them, but I'm only going to get to two. But we'll look at two, and we'll stay for next week, and nobody can say I never teach on faith. That'll be three weeks in a row. Wow. But the first thing we'll see here that <laughs> is involved when great faith is on display is great need. And look in verse 2, and it says, A certain centurion servant who was dear unto him, says, was sick and ready to die. Said that centurion servant was dear unto him. And that word dear has this connotation that he is fond of his servant. He's fond. Of, he has a genuine care for him. And that's very unusual because centurions back then, they had these slaves. They treated them however they wanted to. They basically kept him in fear. One wrong move and he could just say a word and that guy's be dead. But he's fond of this. It's a young man. It's a young slave. Loved by his master. This boy, this young man, loved by his master, is in critical condition. He was sick. You know, it's funny. The Greek doesn't use the word sick. It uses the word for bad or evil. And it, it literally says he is having bad <laughs> for sick. He's, in other words, it's the Greek way of saying he's not doing well. He is like really sick. And it says to the point of death. And when you read Matthew's account, of the same story, Matthew says that he's lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. King James says, dreadfully tormented. So here, when you're an invalid back in that day, I mean, that was bad news. And he's laying there in that bed, and he is physically being racked with pain, severe pain, on a constant basis. And you know, as some know here more than others, because some people don't have kids, the most difficult thing in the world, I think, is to watch your child suffering from illness. That's been that way for me. It's a helpless feeling. You know, you, you take the place of this centurion. 
You know, can you imagine how he felt? He is the most powerful man in that town. He would have been in Capernaum. And he's utterly helpless, though. He's probably valiant in battle. He can't do a thing to help this young boy that's dear to him. Utterly helpless. He loved him. And I'm sure that he would have paid any amount of money, fought any battle, done whatever he could to bring relief to this young man. But he could do nothing. There was no known cure for what he had. Nowhere he could go. What we're seeing here is great human need. Beyond human help. This is where faith begins. George Mueller, to quote him again, says this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Mueller says faith begins where man's power ends. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God. And we talked about that last week. God receives glory through our faith in bringing deliverance to us, right? Amen. No glory for God in that which is humanly possible, but faith begins where man's power ends. Remember, we quoted Psalm 50:15 several times last week. We'll quote it again, where the Lord said in Psalm 50:15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. He said, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. We've all been created for what purpose? What is the purpose we're here for? To glorify God. And that psalm tells us he's glorified when? When he delivers us. And that only happens when we're in trouble. And like I said, I hate being in trouble. Whether it was clear back when I was in grade school and Greg would get me in trouble with Sister Mary Catherine. The, the nun that was the principal of our grade school. I didn't like being in that kind of trouble, or I don't like the kind of trouble where you're facing a severe trial of healing, finances, mental anxiety, depression, whatever. I just don't like trouble. Do you? Y'all like trouble? I don't have anybody in the right mind that does. God has always blessed his people with trouble. And you're like, did you say blessed? I said blessed. Hebrews 11, what do we call it? We call it the faith chapter. But I would call it the chapter of trouble. Myself, it depends on how you look at it. Noah, for instance, he has got a major flood coming his way. I mean, no small thing. This isn't just Louisville underwater. This is the whole world. I think I would call that trouble, wouldn't you? It said Moses had to be hid by his parents. Why? Because Pharaoh's killing every infant he can find that's that age. I would call that trouble, wouldn't you? Israel. And here we're saying God directed them. You go back and you read the account. He directed them to where they've got the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army behind them, and they have got nowhere to go. And God put them there. I would say that's big trouble. It was big trouble. And then there's the walls of Jericho, quite an obstacle. But you go on and you read Hebrews 11. Nobody tends to talk much about the end of that chapter. But it talks there at the end by talking of the violence of fire. This is just King James. This is not me. King James says this. The end of the chapter, talking of the violence of fire, the edge of the sword, women receiving their dead back to life again, torture, cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonments, being stoned, sawn asunder, wandering around in sheepskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. 
Now, could I safely classify all of that under trouble? That's Hebrews 11, in a nutshell. It's a lot of trouble there, right? Yet, that's what God does to his people. And here's, though, what it says of them at the end, after all of that. It says, of these people of whom the world was not worthy, and these all having a good report through faith. In all their trouble, that's what we have in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. These people, God granted them deliverance, and some have said they didn't accept the deliverance, accepting a greater deliverance to come. But it was through their faith. God allowed trouble. They used faith. So that raises a question. Are you sure? Do you want to serve and follow the God of the Bible? Because he will lead you into trouble. Can I say this? He's a troublemaker. So to speak. Not like we would typically think of one, but I would say. If you would, turn to Psalm 107 and put something there in Luke 7. So we're saying he brings us into trouble so he can deliver us and receive glory. Look at Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. He's good. Amen. Everyone say amen. He is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen again. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east, from the west, the north, the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Verse 6, And then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. And then he says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he, God, brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. There was none to help. Here we have it again, verse 13. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands in sunder. All that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he's broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. And he goes on to say, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat. They draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. The last one. They go down into the sea in ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the ways thereof. They mount up to heaven, and they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. And who sent it? 
Who sent all this trouble we've been reading about? The Lord did, didn't He? Yes. They reel to and fro, these sailors, stagger like a drunken man. They are at their wits' end. Verse 28, Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm so that the ways thereof are still. And then they are glad because they be quiet. And so he brings them into their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And it says four times, four times it says there, God brought trouble and it says, then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. But it said he brings them, didn't leave them there. When they cry unto him every time, he brings them out of their distresses because Four times, every time they cried unto him in their trouble, four times it goes on to say, Oh, but men, why, what about this terrible God? Why does he keep playing with people like this? <laughs> Is that what it says? It says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his what? His goodness. His goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. So God's wonderful works and his goodness can only be displayed to men when they're in trouble and cry out in distress. So what do we have in the New Testament? We have the lepers, the gathering demoniac, blind men, apostles in a storm, in a boat, people with no bread to eat, a man with a withered hand, the Syrophoenician woman with a daughter grievously vexed with a devil, the woman with the issue of blood, Jairus' dead daughter, the poor epileptic boy keeps falling in the fire and his dad's trying to deal with that. Seizures, and on and on and on. Everybody's in trouble, aren't they? Everybody's in trouble. But in through their faith, the Lord Jesus every time delivers them, doesn't he? And what do they do? They praise and glorify God for his mercy. We looked at, what, four? I could have gone through a lot more of those last time when God grants deliverance to people gets them from the oppression of the enemy, they praise and glorify Him. That's the way it works. These people, all of them we've talked about, had great needs and only one hope. The Lord Jesus didn't have other options. They didn't have other options back then. Jesus was all they needed. Wasn't He all they needed? Was He sufficient? He was, and they trusted Him fully. Remember, faith is what? Forsaking all I trust Him. And listen, God was faithful every time, wasn't He? Every time. You know, you read all the accounts, you could go through that. All the times when it says they laid the sick, brought the demoniacs, whatever, it says He healed them all, never turned anybody away. So if you go back to Luke 7, we'll look at the second factor that's always involved in great faith. And the second factor is great Humility, And we have that, verses 3 to 7. It says, And when he heard the centurion of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, He is worthy for whom you should do this. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with him, but he was not now far from the house. The centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but saying a word, and my servant shall be healed. 
uh, this guy, this centurion, he had favor with these Jewish elders. Built him a synagogue. They claim he loves the Jews, and that's unusual. It's as unusual for them to say this man, this Roman centurion, loves our nation as it was for him to be fond of his slave because the Roman soldiers hated the Jews. The Jews were nothing but a bunch of troublemakers, nothing but trouble for them, constantly rebelling. The feelings were mutual. The Jews hated their conquerors. It went both ways. But here, this centurion and these Jewish elders and the Jews of that area, they had a little cozy relationship, didn't they? They were getting along just fine. So it says this centurion, he hears Jesus is in Capernaum. He calls the elders to his home and tells them, hey, I am desperate for help. Look at my servant here. I love this boy. Look at him. Would you go to Jesus? Would you go to him and just ask him to help? And I'm sure they're like, hey, just leave it to me, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll take care of it. Leave it to us. We'll plead your case. We'll tell him how generous you are, how much you love us, that you're not like the other Romans, not like a typical Roman. And so they come to the Lord, it says, and they do what? They plead, he is worthy. Oh, just look what all he's done. And he likes us to boot. And Jesus goes with them. That's what it says, doesn't it? Now, I don't believe that he went with them because of anything the centurion did. I don't think he went with them because he loved the nation. I don't think he went to his house, started heading out his way because he built them a synagogue. I think he went because he met one of the most basic conditions to faith. He asked Jesus to come. He asked because God answering our prayers, we need to understand, has nothing to do with our needs, our church attendance, our good works, how many chapters in the Bible we read this week. All those things are important. I'm not putting any of that down. Honestly, I'm not. It's all important. But the only reason that God answers any prayer is based on faith. And faith begins by asking doesn't it? It does. So somewhere between the elders leaving his house to go ask Jesus and Jesus arriving there, this centurion had a revelation of who he was in God's sight and who Jesus was. Because I think he began to look at his heart and he realized he'd heard Jesus speak. He'd seen who he was. He got an idea of that. And I think he realized, man, this guy hears from God and God can see my heart, and I'm not worthy, and I will never fool him. He's thinking, I don't have anything. They're presenting this case that I, I don't really have anything to present before him, honestly, that he should do me any favors. That's what he's saying. He sends his friends now, not the Jews, they're not around. Sends his friends, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't bother yourself anymore is what he's saying, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Because he's saying there's things that have happened under my roof that I'm not worthy for you to come here. And that reminds me of the publican in Luke 18. He's in the temple. It says praying. And how did he pray? It says he's standing afar off. It said he would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but it said he smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful, be propitiated to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, that, which is what the Jews are doing. Look at all the good he's done. And that's what the Pharisee did, didn't he? 
said it said he praying to himself. Look what all I fast twice in the week. I give alms. I do all these things, presenting all that before the Lord. And it says that man didn't go home justified. He didn't get anything. His prayer wasn't answered. But it's that man that realizes where he really is before the Lord. It's like Peter, if you're in chapter 7, just turn back to Luke chapter 5. It's like what happened with Peter here. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Well, Master, we've toiled all the night, taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. And look in verse 8. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus had to say this to him unto Simon, Fear not, because he had a lot to fear. Fear not, though, from henceforth you will catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. What I think the Bible is saying today, what we're seeing here, is that true faith is always born out of seeing ourselves as powerless and unworthy and seeing God as he really is, holy yet willing to help us in our great need with his power. So listen, D.L. Moody said this, Moses spent 40 years thinking that he was somebody. That's how he was raised in Pharaoh's court. 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. And I thought that was good. That's where we have to be. So look, there's a way to approach the Lord for anything we need, isn't there? There is always a humility to true faith. Think about this. Two different types of people came to Jesus. Those that were willing to humble themselves before him and those that were just trying to use him to get what they wanted, like the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, or Herod. Why did some receive from Jesus what they wanted and others were left empty-handed? The difference wasn't in Jesus. He is always and still is, was and always and is and always will be willing to help. He is. That's his nature. The difference was in the people and their approach. There is always a humility to faith. Think about it. This centurion, as I said, he was probably the most prominent and wealthy man in Capernaum. Yet here he is. A Roman soldier willing to bow before this Jewish carpenter. And there was nothing about him that looked exceptional. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah 53? Nothing exceptional about him. And he's calling him Lord. 
Humility is always involved in faith. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, another wealthy and I would say well-heeled man. Yet, it says this. It says, when he saw him, Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray you, come and lay hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. One thing to tie these two points together is, I think great need and humility, I think they go hand in hand. When you have a great need, you'll embarrass yourself. You'll do whatever it takes if it's desperate enough to get help. You will. And that's why I think they go in the hand. This guy, Jairus, it's my little daughter is dying. The centurion, my servant that I love is dying. I don't care if i got to humble myself before this Jewish guy. I've seen him. I know what he can do, and I need help. And he's the only one that can help me. There is no other help. That need produces humility. And in between Jairus asking, you've got a sandwich that takes place. Jairus asks him to come, and Jesus says, I will come, and starts walking. And he gets here over here, but in between there, the meat of that sandwich, we have somebody else, more humility, born of desperation. The woman with the issue of blood. Oh, suffered many things. The physicians couldn't do anything for her. And in her desperation, what did she do? She comes into the crowd. That, that was unlawful for her to do that. She was considered unclean with an issue of blood. The law says, you can't do that. And she's coming to a holy man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says what? Here's how desperate she was. I don't know if she got knocked to the ground or what, but when she says, I can just touch the hem of his garment, you know where that was? That's down here. She's not grabbing his shoulder. I'm saying that's the humility part of it. She just wants Jesus. She's desperate. She's humbling herself. She's taking that risk because he has to heal me or I'm going to die, is what she's saying. And it says when Jesus realized that power came from his body and only faith can draw power. Amen? Only faith draws power. Jesus, it says, he looks around. He's looking around. He wants to see who it is that touched him. And it says the woman, she knew something happened. You know, sometimes you can be healed. You know something's not right inside. And all of a sudden, man, I know God just touched me. Something's right on the inside and I'm doing good. <laughs> Beat on my stomach or whatever. <laughs> she knows what happened inside her help. And he's looking and he knows, she, knows, she knows who he is. She comes before Jesus, she fell on him, and it says she told him all the truth. Everything that happened, why she came up, why she did what she did. She was a desperate, humble woman. And how did the Lord deal with her? He says, go in peace because your faith has made you whole. And that's how it works. Humility is always involved in true faith. By asking, because it's humble to ask somebody to help you, even God, and especially the more of a self-made person that you are, because we all, all of us, we tend to try to work things out ourselves so many times when we shouldn't. We should be going to the Lord. Bill Gothard said this, it takes a lot of humility to cry aloud to God in our distress, and humility before the living God is what we need. And that's what we see in the centurion and the leper, the Syrophoenician woman. And she would have been a wealthy woman. I think she was. 
that she's willing to humble herself by asking for help. Actually, she wasn't just asking, she was begging, is what it says. She just kept asking. Didn't give up, did she? And he just ignored her, called her a dog, put obstacles in her way that only humility could crawl under to get to him, to get help. She kept asking in faith and humility. Called her a dog and she's like, I'll take that label. You call me whatever you want to if it's going to bring my daughter healing. Because she said, truth, Lord, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs. And Jesus was impressed with this woman as he was the centurion. Because he said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you even as you will. Listen to this quote of Andrew Murray. He says, we need only think for a moment of what faith is. We need only to think for a moment of what faith is. Is it not the confession of nothingness and helplessness, the surrender and the waiting to let God work? Is it not in itself the most humbling thing there can be, the acceptance of our place as dependents who can claim or get or do nothing but what grace bestows. And he says this, so we're talking about faith and humility go hand in hand. He says, humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for a living trust. Because pride is just the opposite. And pride is a killer of faith. A killer. Because pride refuses to give up its self-confidence, its self-will, and the exaltation of self. Pride refuses to let self go down and be humbled. Refuses to let God be who he is. So Jesus said this to the Jews. They were persecuting him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Listen, we're saying pride kills faith. He said to them, how can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? So when you want honor from other people and want to look right in their eye and you're embarrassed that people know you're trusting the Lord or that see you're in a trial, that pride will kill faith. That's what he's telling them. Didn't it say that a lot of the Pharisees, they knew who Jesus was, they believed, but they weren't going to confess him because of fear of the people. Amen? And the other way, humility is in acting and enduring. I think that's the hardest part of faith. Great faith is acting in obedience to what God's told you to do when everything appears to contradict what you're confessing. So there's a lot of examples of this in the New Testament and Old Testament. But, you know, with Abraham and, and Sarah, you know, Abraham changed his name for 25 years. Changed it from Abram to Abraham, father of a multitude. In a sense, that had to be humbling. But the thing is, he was a father. He had had children. He just hadn't had him by Sarah. But in Genesis 17, God appeared to Abraham and told him that Sarah changes her name and said she would bear him a son. And even then, we're talking about the humility of faith. Even hearing that, Abraham, the father of faith, laughed. That's what it says. <laughs> he laughed. He said, what? He said, me, a hundred, and her, ninety, are going to have a baby? He laughed. And God said, don't laugh. Because that's what's going to happen. And Abraham accepted that. Fourteen years later, Abraham's sitting outside of his tent. Those angels come. One of them's the pre-incarnate Christ. Appears to Abraham and told him, 
Your wife, Sarah, is going to bear a son in a year. And guess who is eavesdropping in on this conversation? It said Sarah was inside the tent, and she's got her ear to the door of the tent. She's listening to this conversation. And what does she do? She laughs. Genesis 18 says this, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's what she said. And the Lord said to Abraham, Well, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And the Lord said this, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because it appears that way to a lot of people sometimes, doesn't it? And he says, At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And it went on to say, Sarah denied it. She says, oh, I didn't laugh. He goes, oh, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so the Lord, no, you did laugh. But that's the human reaction, isn't it? To hearing God is going to supernaturally do something is to laugh and ridicule, isn't it? And I think that's the hardest thing. You're confessing and acting on something and everybody can see it's, it's not the way it is, what you're saying. It looks bad. That's where they join hands. Because it's not easy to trust the Lord when what you're believing for is obviously not there. It's extremely difficult, extremely difficult, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. But you're in good company if you get laughed at because the story of Jairus, go back to that, when the Lord finally made it to his house, they told Jairus this, they said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble him. Don't trouble the master anymore. And Jesus sees the people. They hired people to come in and do this. They were probably hired mourners. He sees them weeping and wailing at the girl's death. And he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Jesus said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And that's Jesus's faith speaking because she was dead. And those people knew a corpse when they saw one. And I'm sure they are like, who does this guy think he is? Because it says next that they laughed him to scorn total humiliation. The Lord Jesus. So if you've been laughed at because it's obvious you're going through something and you've been going through it for a while, you hear snickers or get remarks, you're in good company. That's what happened to the Lord. And that can happen when we take a lot of different stands on God's word because we believe what it says, whether it's healing, deliverance, non-resistance, the head covering, divorce and remarriage, whatever. It's humiliating. You believe that? Nobody believes that. Nobody practices those things. Trusting God, walking with the Lord Jesus is going to take us to the same place that he ended up. And that is our pride is going to have to be crucified because his was. He hung on the cross in total humiliation, naked, forsaken, and ridiculed. And what did he say to us? He says, we have to pick up our cross and follow him. That's what the Bible, if we follow what it says, that's where it's going to lead us. Trouble, ridicule, and humiliation. Does anybody still want to keep signed up? That's what it says, isn't it? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? But the good news is that after the humiliation, there is exaltation. Peter writes, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. 
And he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Because humbling yourself in obedience and faith to God always ends in victory. It does. The centurion's servant was healed. Jairus' daughter was raised to life. Abraham and Sarah got the last laugh. You know why? Because that's what they named Isaac. Isaac, the name means laughter. They were probably laughed at, but once he was born, they were filled with laughter and joy. The Syrophoenician's daughter, she was set free. I guarantee you, she said, you call me worse than a dog anything you want to. My daughter is set free, and she wasn't before. So let's remember that. Amen? Yeah, we got to be set for trouble, humiliation, <laughs> but not for defeat. <laughs> because God will exalt us, and he's faithful, and he's going to bless his people, and he's going to put us through that period of testing like he did with Job. Because he's going to test where is our heart really at. You say you want to walk with me. You say you really trust me. You say that I will do these things and I'm able to do them. Then we'll put you to the test to one degree or another. So let's remember this about great faith. It's born of great need, trouble. And when trouble comes in your life, just remember this. Maybe trouble will come in somebody's life this week. I don't know. It's not the end of the world. Just remember this. Think this to yourself. God has brought this into my life so that he can show me his goodness, mercy, and deliverance. Look at it that way, rather than more trouble. No, God's going to give me deliverance and manifest his power. And just remember also, we talked about this at length here, it's wedded to great humility. He's our only hope. We've got to bow before Jesus and recognize our helplessness and unworthiness and trust in his power and willingness to help us. So we talked about the cross. You find God's love in the cross because that's what he says when you read Romans chapter 8. He says, you look at the cross, and he says, you're worried whether God's going to give you the things you need. And he says, if he was willing to give, that's his love, his only son, how much more will he freely not give you everything else? He couldn't give you any more than him. And what he did, and that's the ultimate, and so everything else is below that, and he'll do it for us. Amen? And it all flows out of the cross. Anyways, all the blessings that we have. Great faith wedded to great humility. God is willing to help us and to give his power in our lives. Amen? We just got to trust him for it because he is faithful. Amen? Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the truth of your word, Lord, and that you are a God that cares about us and you're willing and able to help us. All we have to do is ask and trust you because that's all they did in the New Testament and you were faithful to come and provide everything they needed to answer all those prayers. And I thank you, Lord, you'll do that for us here and work that in our hearts. Bring us back to a place that we're looking to you only. I ask that you'll open all of our eyes, Lord, to see your power that resides in you that you're willing to give us as your children. Just ask you to do that. And we thank you that you will in Jesus' name. Amen.
beside your majesty Gave up everything for me Suffered at the hands of those you had created You took all my guilt and shame When you died and rose again Now today you reign In heaven and earth exalted I really want to worship you my Lord you have won my heart and I am yours Forever and ever I will love you You are the only one who died for me Gave your life to set me free So I lift my voice to you Suffered at the hands 